National University is a military-friendly college offering tuition discounts for over 75 programs with 100% online options. Visit www.nu.edu slash project. On this episode of the Panjway Podcast, our first ever guest is with us, uh, retired Captain Matthew Kohler, who was the platoon leader for 1st Platoon, Bravo Company, 1st and 64th Armor at Cop Sparwangar in uh, Panjway, Afghanistan from July to December in 2012. Uh, Matt has some great insights for us, uh, some great observations about the, the men that he worked with and led, and uh, some, some, we had some really great conversations about uh, our experiences and, all, more importantly, some of our experiences after the military. Uh, it was a great pleasure to have Matt with us up in Alaska, and we think you'll really enjoy uh, hearing what he has to say. And without any further ado, here's episode three. All right, so here we are, episode three. Uh, interesting start to the day. Uh, probably wasn't how I expected today to start, uh, and I'm sure that Matt was not expecting to be walking in a file with me up in front of a formation again. Uh, so no, we weren't patrolling in uh, Panjway. We were walking on a glacier. Uh, what'd you think about that, Matt? Yeah, that was uh, it was kind of surreal considering all this. Um, yeah, when she said you're going to be in a file. I was just like, really? Is this a joke? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. Uh, that, that would be weird. I, it was almost weird to see the picture that you sent me. Chris. Yeah. Of us walking in a, like, in a line. Wait, is that Matt Kohler behind him? In a line? <laughs> yeah. That was, yeah. Was and we had Texans instead of Afghans there with us. That's true. We were dragging <laughs> them along as if they were Afghans. Like, come on, get on. Let's go. We're going this way. There might be an argument that there's a lot of similarities between Texans and Afghans. Yeah. <laughs> we, uh, cue. Oh anchor. yeah. Here they come. Here it comes. Ah, Texas. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I made the joke while we were walking. I was like, oh, do you want me to make some like mind detector noises? The fewer the noises, the better. Yeah. <laughs> but we, we were little, uh, the other week ago, we were looking at one of those videos and then we were amazed at how many noises that thing made. Like even when we're, it was like safe. So I'm not 100% sure I ever really knew how to operate that thing. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't think I did either. By the end, I was just kind of like sweeping it around. And if it made a big noise, I would stop and kind of think, is this where an ID right. should be? You know? <laughs> yeah. the, the turkey sound, right? The turkey sound. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah You're exactly. a turkey. Mark the ground. Yep. <laughs> Spray paint. <laughs> uh, so to our listeners, Matt Kohler is here with us. Uh, or with me, at least, in Alaska. Uh, he and his wife, Lauren, came up to visit. We've had a great time. Um, and it's been a immense pleasure to have him here. I have not seen him since 2014. So it's been awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's been great to be here. Hospitality has been outstanding. and It's so great. Yeah. <laughs> we just appreciate having the oppor- opportunity to be here and do this. Yeah, we appreciate you taking the effort to to take your time and wake from your family and everything to fly up and do this for us. It's pretty cool to have, you know, have this first interaction be in the flesh. Yeah, at least yeah for y'all. absolutely. Yeah. So you're here now. Um, but could you tell us a little bit about how you came to join the army? 
uh, how you chose the infantry and how you specifically ended up with us at Spurwingar and give it like us the, the elevator speech. Yeah. So I was, uh, playing football at Utah state university. I was a dream of mine to play division one football, uh, newly married and my wife, Lauren had just joined the army and I was kind of learning a little bit about myself at that time. Shortly after uh, I had some injuries playing football and uh, with the birth of our first son, I was able to decide that uh, football wasn't really the, the path forward for me. Um, I was sitting in our apartment early in the semester, fall semester of 2017 and 2017 or 2007 sorry yeah 2007 <laughs> <laughs> yeah 2007 and i was watching uh the iraq war unfold right right in front of me on tv um pat tillman story came on and it really resonated with me it was the first time i'd heard his story and the first time i really considered that i would you know even join the military it was something that I had thought about maybe a little bit in high school, but then dismissed. So I went to the ROTC, actually met up with a recruiter there. He was a lieutenant colonel, and he told me basically everything that I needed to know and everything that I needed to hear. That was what I was going to do. Um, I made the decision to join the ROTC in 2007 and that was really the beginning of it for me um, when did you graduate i graduated with my uh, master's degree actually in 2010 and commissioned in 2010 and that was the beginning of my career as an officer um, i spent a little bit of time recruiting at utah state in their recruiting program for rotc and then uh, then went on to infantry basic course where I prepared for ranger school. Really, uh, that was the next step for me, and and it was what I was uh, wanting to do. Finished the basic infantry officers course at Fort Benning and went straight into ranger school. And I was able to go through ranger school in 61 days with with the help of my peers around me and a really good group of of men that that I knew from the basic infantry officers course in 2000, uh, that was 2011. And, uh, shortly after graduating ranger school, I found myself at Fort Stewart. I was meeting with the battalion commander for my first assignment. And, uh, he thought it was just hilarious that he would make me an armor officer. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, honestly, I think it was a little bit more than that. I think he had more more information about what was coming down the pipe right. for the battalion. But because this would have been about a month before the rest of the battalion even knew that they were deploying. Absolutely, yeah. So I spent a month as an armor officer in an armor platoon, uh, learning all about tanks, uh, something that I thought I would never do. And then shortly after that, I uh, we found out that we were going to NTC, and then we would be deploying as a dismounted force in Afghanistan and uh, Kandahar was where we would be ending up there. Um, so I took that 
that armor platoon and with the help of my platoon sergeant who was one of the early influences as far as my experience goes with NCOs, um, he really uh, taught me a lot about what it means to be a good officer. Not trying to brag that I was amazing or anything, but I learned a lot from uh, Sergeant First Class Peck and he really steered me down, down the right path to uh, leading soldiers in the army. We, uh, we went to NTC and, and that was uh, one of my first opportunities to truly lead soldiers. It was one of those experiences where uh, you, you bond with your men and you have the opportunity to uh, learn just what their metal is and, and how they are going to react in a wartime situation. And uh, it was at that time that we actually found out that we would be going to be dropping one platoon to uh, Bravo Company and, and a platoon from Bravo Company would be coming over to Charlie Company. And then we, we deployed. Um, that was, it was very quick. Uh, I think from the time that I uh, got there to the, the unit, it was a short five months and we were in Afghanistan. And now you spent a good portion of that first time in Afghanistan at Kandahar with your armor platoon. Yeah, uh, we were we were assigned as a PSD for uh, an admiral and his team of lawyers. Uh, it was the rule of law group there at Kandahar Airfield. And that gave me the opportunity to see Afghanistan uh, from a, a, a little bit different perspective than uh, the combat perspective I saw. Um, we, we had the opportunity to take the uh, rule of law team around Afghanistan, uh, Kandahar City, and different locations around Kandahar City. It was an opportunity for me to uh, kind of understand how to operate in Afghanistan and how to really work with the people and work with my team. And uh, that was the first three months while I was in Afghanistan. Not a dangerous mission per se, uh, but an important mission and, and one that, that I took very seriously. So at what point did you find out you were going to be leaving and going to Sparwangar? Shortly after um, we were detached to the rule of law PSD mission, and I went out to Kenjakak and my commander uh, basically uh, let me know, um, you know, you're going to be tasked to a different mission. He kind of gave me an idea, uh, but it was shortly after that returning back from Kenjakak that I found out that um, I would be going to Sparwangar. Uh, I don't remember exactly the situation, but it was sitting down with my platoon sergeant and we got a call from the, the company leadership and they let us know there were going to be some changes and, and I would be heading out to Sparwangar. How much notice did you get? 
It was very little notice, um, just a couple days and, uh, and really not a lot of time to, uh, prepare myself for, for the change of mission. Right. Uh, or your soldiers. No. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I knew that, uh, the platoon was going to be in good hands with, with Sergeant Peck. And honestly, most days, um, they had gotten to the point where they understood the mission and, and it was an opportunity for, for them to, uh, continue to, to run a mission that they were, uh, good at and, and understood and an opportunity for me to, uh, finally, uh, get in and use my infantry skills that I had learned through ranger school. And so what, um, what had you heard about Sparrowingar before you, before you ended up out there? Was there anything turning on a rumor mill or I mean, what, what did you have an idea of what was going on or what? Yeah, there were rumors every day about what was happening out in Panjway. And that was, I think the exciting thing for me, but also very, uh, very frightening, uh, in a way. I uh, I knew about Luxmore, uh, Corporal Luxmore, and and his his passing. Um, I I knew about and had heard about other stories of uh, contact with uh, with the Taliban, and I knew that it was a, a daily fight um, out there. Uh, besides that, you don't really understand until you get out there what you're getting into until um, you've been on the ground and you've had the opportunity to, to walk around in a single file and, and, and really understand what, uh, what it's like to know that each step could be your like last step. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So you went out on a few kind of cakewalk patrols, when you got to us before we started to, to get back into the serious areas. Um, do you remember the mission in which, you know, the first mission in which you took contact or in which there was a significant, you know, threat level? Absolutely. Um, the, the first mission that, uh, that I was actually on my own without Lieutenant persons who, who was the platoon leader before me, um, we were in the area of Najat. Uh, we got on the ground and we uh, immediately started getting radio chatter from uh, from the talk that there were uh, enemy combatants in the area and that we would likely be taking contact soon. A short time uh, after we started hearing about uh, enemy in the area. We also started receiving directions from higher, uh, to, uh, move up North, basically into the heart of where the enemy movement was being detected. It was my understanding that we had predator on, on station. And, and when you have an asset like that, you, you got to take advantage of it. Sure. Right. And, and that was, uh, what I was getting from, from the talk at the time. So we were given instructions to, to make that movement. And it was a, a decision that I made 
uh, to to not move the entire platoon in that uh, direction. Uh, we broke off a small group, myself um, and um, Sergeant Rosales. You, Curtis, were part of that that uh, lovely operation or sub operation, and uh, I think Perez was there as well as voice um, the RTO. Um, and we, we started our movement and at, at that time uh, we started to take contact. Um, and it was, it was for me, one of those experiences that I, you know, you never forget, right? When, when somebody is shooting at you um, and, and you start to think, um, are they shooting at me? And then, and then you realize they are shooting at me. someone's trying to kill me right now. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's, uh, it's definitely, uh, surreal. It's something that you guys, uh, had, had, uh, seen and had experienced, but for the, for me, I was experiencing that for the first time. Did it sound like you thought it would? Like, did, did you have any idea what to expect in terms of what the incoming gunfire would sound like or? You know, you, you, you do all of these uh, simulations and training and, and you think you know what it's going to sound like. And, and then when you've got bullets popping and, and whizzing overhead, it, it's not anything like uh, being shot at with blanks. No. It's, it's just a completely different uh situation and and so that uh that experience taught me quite a bit it taught me that the platoon that i had been attached to scrapper platoon first platoon uh bayonet company a group of men who knew what combat was and were not afraid to uh, step up to to fight the enemy yeah i think it's important to kind of clarify uh, that this was a pretty thick and bushy firefight, that this was not kind of your standard wares, hit and run, couple rounds. It was a pretty intense ambush, a really complex ambush where they essentially opened up on the rear element where I was, and then they opened up on you guys more or less at the same time. So it felt very coordinated and organized, and they hit us in the back with a PKM and an AK, and I know you guys were so close to them. Like Curtis, you said that you could hear them, right? Oh, yeah, I could hear them talking and then reloading. Right. Yeah, whether, was, I think it was the AKs they were reloading, but I wasn't listening yeah. that close. <laughs> <laughs> so like, I think, ah, you we know, need to move. Not only did you get first contact, but that firefight in the back, it was bad for us. And in the front, it was bad for you guys. So that was a hell of an introduction to the AO for sure. And that's all that happened on that mission that's worth mentioning. Uh, <laughs> no, no, you know, the, the other thing to mention is, uh, and it's important to understand is, is that, you know, we made those movements. We, we put ourselves in that position and, uh, and, and we expected to have predator engage and, uh, and unbeknownst to us had checked off station nine minutes prior to contact. And, and so, you know, you do these things and, and in, in the heat of battle, you know, things uh, don't necessarily always go the way that you think they're going to go. Um, it was a long 
pretty long movement that we made to get in there. And then we had uh, uh, Kiowa's uh, check on with us and it stopped. Um, and and that, that gave us the opportunity to uh, kind of re regroup. And at that point, um, without any other assets available to us, we, we knew that we had to take off. Uh, it, was, it was time to end the, the mission and end the patrol. And uh, on that movement out, it was, uh, oh, man. It was another oh. uh, smoker. <laughs> Everybody was destroyed anyways, because it was in the middle of the day. It was like 3 o'clock in the evening, and it was 100 plus degrees. Yeah, all my water was gone at that point. I, and I, you know, we had those big two-liter bottles of water we carry, a liter and a half, I think. Yeah. And I had gone through at least three of those plus my camelback, and that was empty. I had nothing. And I, that was pretty, pretty typical from what I learned later on. You know that when you, when you go into those types of situations, um, you, you prepare the best you can, but you really start to uh understand that you know this is this is uh a little bit more than what we bargained for today and uh and it was another learning moment for me i learned just how much the the platoon uh was willing to sacrifice for each other you know i saw the team carry you out of there basically And, and for our listeners, I'll go ahead and fess up. I was carrying a saw all day. I drank all my water. It was very hot. And I wasn't going to quit. There's no way I was going to quit. Especially not on New LT's first patrol. And uh, we, we were leaving. I was already smoked. And we had to cross a plowed, flooded field. Which just it was just like thigh-deep It's like cake batter. And I took like four steps in it, and then I was out. Down. I was down. Like it wasn't even optional. I was just out. <laughs> I remember watching you collapse, man. It was like a second, a second potatoes. You just went down. I woke up to uh, Bally slapping the ever living shit out of me, like open hand man slap, just blasting me into consciousness. And then I was up, and yeah, I mean. And anybody who's carried a saw knows exactly what that that feels like, right? Yeah, I mean, you carry all your own ammunition. You carry this this heavy weapon that uh, you know is is meant for urban warfare, but uh, not necessarily meant for climbing over grape rows on a daily basis. Yeah. So, well, I think that's another thing, right there. Is yeah, you know, I don't know what your impression is when your helicopter first came into Panjway, but it looked flat to us like this is flat this is going to be easy and it just the movement that just the different kinds of terrain climbing up and over walls through flooded fields you know through canals up and over grape rows it it was taxing it was like a long distance crossfit marathon or something i don't know how you compare it but absolutely it was uh as as our commander used to uh, tell us it was getting after it every day uh and we we did um those those types of missions um were the norm that that became uh what we did on a daily basis and uh you got really good at understanding how to uh 
you know, manage those, those terrain challenges and uh, be able to give it back to the enemy. Um, it's always difficult to fight in, in somebody else's home territory, but uh, we figured it out. I mean, we all got home from that one. Uh, I think we had about six guys in the aid station with IVs, but we got back. Um, I believe that would have been in early July. If that, if that's, if memory serves me correctly. Um, so I, I would say the next real challenge that we ran into when you were there was, uh, comes to my mind is Minotaur down. Yeah. Minotaur down, uh, was one of those missions where, um, once again, it was, it was, uh, based on the planning. It was supposed to be an in and out. We're going to go and, uh, take this uh, 2000 pound front loader with a mine clearing device on the front and remote controlled remote controlled. <laughs> absolutely. It's basically a Bobcat with a, with a mine roller on the front of it. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And we're going to take it down uh, one of the most uh, dangerous avenues in, in, in the AO and we're going to, uh, we're going to drive it around in the enemy's backyard and then we're going to head back home and head to calf for a little bit of R and R, right? Some milkshakes and smoothies. Yeah. TGI Fridays. And, and that's, that's what we thought we were going to do. Um, what ended up happening was, uh, early on in the mission, we took contact. Um, the plan was to move South through that village, uh, on a, on a, uh, you know, well beaten trail, but uh, not a very wide trail, uh, just wide enough for the, the Minotaur to basically uh, be able to clear the walls on the right side and, and a river bank on the left side. And uh, as happens when people take cover, um, they uh, don't necessarily uh, care about a remote control in their hands. And, and that Minotaur went uh, during uh, a pretty close contact. Actually remember seeing a guy poke his head around the wall and uh, start firing at us. And uh, we were chewing the ground, basically. And that Minotaur went off the trail and right into a river bank, creek bank. Yes. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Best yeah. laid plans. Just drive this thing around and prove that we can yeah. drive right into a creek. And that's exactly what it was, right? You know, prove that we can take this thing anywhere we want to take it. And, uh, and the reality of the situation was we had no business taking that thing where we took it that day. Yeah. I always thought it was a flawed concept. Like we're going to build this thing that can drive over IEDs and set them off. But then there was no like continuation of that plan. There's no follow through. Like, well, what happens if it gets blown up? Or in this case, it drove into a creek. I mean, if it if it hit an ID and it had been totaled, we would have been in the same spot of having to salvage this half a million dollar piece of equipment. Because as we would find out, there's no way that we could leave it there. Oh yeah, and and that was what we uh, we got from hire. Um, initially, our recommendation was let's throw a couple thermite grenades on this thing, 
pull any sensitive items off of it and burn it in the ditch there. And that was, uh, that was not acceptable from hires perspective. And, uh, and so the, the ultimate plan was to protect this thing and wait for a bulldozer to bulldoze down a mile path, basically from the nearest route to get to it, to pull it out. So we built a mile road with a bulldozer to pull this thing out. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, whenever this is his first contact, the Minotaur rolls into the ditch. And then when does Boyce get hit? So it was that, it was that actual contact where, where Boyce, uh, the, my RTO, um, took uh, around to his abdomen. Uh, well, we'll call it his abdomen because it was his dick. It was right. <laughs> it was right above his dick. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that that really uh, was a, a huge blow to the platoon uh, because Boyce was an outstanding radio operator. Um, he knew his job. Boyce survived, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so for the first little bit of that day, when all this drama was unfolding, our squad was actually in the trucks up at OP Mosque. And I was like sitting on the gun, listening uh, listen to all this stuff play out over the radio. And I remember Boyce queuing up, and he was like mid-conversation. I heard the AK open up, and then it just like stops. You know? And I had this like really weird sinking pit. I was, I was like, Boyce has been hit. I just knew it was Boyce, you know, because of how the radio sounded and like that, the way it just cut off automatically. And so we were sitting there knowing, knowing somebody had been hit or I think Bally was trying to cue up you guys on the horn and couldn't get any response out of anybody. And we were trying to figure out what's going on, but I just had this really weird, instinctual, guttural feeling that it was Boyce. And so, you know, when you guys, so what we had did this all play out down there. So Boyce ended up rolling down into the ditch himself, uh, went into the water and, um, and you guys know what that's like, uh, carrying all that gear and then, and then being, uh, essentially, uh, stuck, uh, in the water and you, you can't, you can't do much to get your, your, yourself out of there. So, um, we did, what we could to, to pull him out. It was a, it was a good ditch. I think there's even video of it. Yeah, we, we have the video. We'll, we'll throw it on here while you're yeah. talking. And, uh, and you know, we did, uh, we were able to get Boyce up and over the riverbank. And, um, I remember, uh, as, as we're pulling him up, um, you, you do it, you know, what you can, you're trying to, you're trying to, uh, still maintain some, some amount of security and, and be able to return fire if, if anything happens, uh, at, at that point. But, um, I remember I'm, I'm reaching down to help pull him up, uh, and a, and a couple of us were, and I flagged him with my weapon and he, and he said, and he's like, sir, don't shoot me again. <laughs> Yeah, that says a lot about him. I think I have a, a great 
little takeaway from this whole uh, drama is that when you guys finally got him out of there and back to the truck, so we actually loaded him onto my truck and we took him back to Spare One Guard for the medevac. And, uh, you know, of course I hopped out and I was on one end of the, of the uh, stretcher. And Boyce, of course, he had had a couple of morphine lollipops at this point. And we had been playing Skyrim on their Xbox in their room for the entire deployment up to this point. <laughs> and we go to put him on the bird, and Boyce looks up at me, and he goes, Coffee. He said, don't let her play my Skyrim character for me. <laughs> I said, I will, man, I will. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll take care of it. I'll take care of your character for you. That was, uh, that was pretty good right there. And then we put him on the bird. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, 18 hours, about 18 hours after that first contact, we, we finally walked out of there. But, um, that, that day, um, I want to say while we guarded that thing, we took contact, uh, 12 to 15 times. And the only saving grace was, uh, was really having, uh, helicopter support yeah. come in and, and, and that was the only time the, the fighting stopped really, uh, was when we had birds on, on overhead and, and when they left, it started back up. Yeah. And that was killing us being in the trucks. And Curtis, you were in the trucks too, right? Yeah, and I, I never got out. But I do remember we dismounted a lot of people yeah. from the trucks. So I think all the gunners got out. Yeah. Uh, we combat locked the doors and we sent a lot of, we sent a good portion of our guys, probably a fire team worth up the road with uh, four or five of us went down there. Yeah, because I remember it was killing us to be separated from you guys while all this was going on. And so we were, we were working everything on our end to try and to try and get somebody in the truck so that at least some of us could go down there. And so, but it was still way up into the day. I mean, it was late uh, when we finally, four or five of us got dismounted and walked into you guys. And uh, I was, I just remember walking down there thinking like, oh, fuck, what did I, <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like, why did I do this? I should have stayed in the trucks. No, I'm just joking. But I remember walking out that night, we, we took that road out that y'all had driven the Minotaur down and it was like pitch black dark. Uh, even under nods, there was no light, you know, and I just remember that pucker factor. And uh, I remember we finally stepped off on the hyena off of the dirt and onto the, onto the asphalt. And I looked at Bally and I said, you couldn't have got a toothpick in my asshole. <laughs> <laughs> it was slow moving. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that whole stint, like the fact you guys had to bunker down for, you know, 16 hours. Um it's kind of why we ended up calling it Minotaur down, not because the Minotaur went down, but because it kind of turned into that shelter in place and uh, situation, which obviously is nothing like what happened in Mogadishu. But, you know, we we kind of half jokingly called it that. Yeah. 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 But it kind of stuck. <laughs> yeah. And, and we had, you know, one of the things that I that I don't want to miss saying is the the amazing things that I saw uh, guys do on that mission. Um you know, you, we, we basically were on that path and, and there was a, uh, a great enemy position where they could just open up, uh, come around a corner. They didn't even have to stick their head around the corner. They just could have popped a, popped a, a PKM or an AK 47 around the corner and just lit us up straight down the line. Uh, and, and that was, uh, something that everybody on the ground understood and knew 
and yet we had uh, we had guys who volunteered to lay down at the front with a 240 and uh, and guard the platoon essentially and make sure that we weren't we weren't uh, mowed down and uh, it was it was later in the day that uh, we we had taken contact and uh, and we finally pushed into a what I would call the Alamo, essentially, um, where we were able to provide overwatch on that uh, that piece of equipment, but still have a little bit better protection. But that's where we fought the rest of the day, and uh, and I saw uh, I saw amazing things. Um, I I don't want to name all the names off that I saw, uh, you know, do, do some, uh, valorous acts, but, uh, you know, you had a Koa there, you had Brown there, you had Sergeant Nince there, and they were all, um, like I said, I start naming names off. I'm going to miss somebody, but they were all, uh, engaging the enemy and, and fighting, uh, you know, not for the stupid piece of equipment in the ditch, it was for each other, yeah, for uh, boys, for boys, and and to, to you know protect uh, the platoon and, and make sure everybody got out safe. Which I think uh, became kind of a common thread for the next several weeks because that that was kind of the start of a really rough spread of time for us. Um, you know, the the next thing that happened to the platoon uh, was was Clark. Uh, which I would, I guess, I think it was like a week later, if if even that. Yeah, very shortly after that, uh, we were sitting in a, uh, basically a QRF uh, position, waiting, providing support for another mission uh, south in uh, near the Registan, and uh, and we were. Uh, you know, expecting to have an easy day, right? It was it's a common theme here. Yeah. <laughs> Another theme. <laughs> if it's if you expect it's going to be an easy day, it's probably not going to be, and that's that's uh, what that turned into. We got called up around noon, and um, we uh, completely different mission, uh, but we were on we were on QRF, and so uh, Charlie Company uh, one two three took contact and. Uh, and, uh, actually it was, it was an IED mass cow, essentially, uh, they had a daisy chained IED that went off and, uh, and injured, uh, a good number of people uh, off the top of my head. I can't remember the number of casualties that they had, but it was a good significant portion of the platoon, including their platoon leader. Yeah. yeah I think he lost both of his legs. Yeah. And uh, we were called to support that uh, that mass cow. And, and what you know about a mass cow uh, is that um, really people start uh, you you start running out of, of medical supplies. And so our understanding was we were going to provide some uh, some relief to these guys and, and help uh, help get medical supplies to them uh, that were. Uh, 
our understanding was much needed. We made the movement uh, down Route Hyena and uh, and stopped just uh, north of that position. I believe is about two clicks north, maybe a little bit further. And we dismounted, and um, and we didn't have uh, we didn't have a, a significant ground force because of the nature of our QRF mission. We were supposed to be in vehicles and provide vehicular support. We weren't supposed to be dismounted that day, but uh, we got on the ground and uh, Clark volunteered to take the lead. Uh, he was going to clear and uh, him and Sergeant Holt uh, took off like, uh, like you, uh, you know, you come to expect somebody who, uh, who, really cares about their fellow soldiers and is is willing to put their life on the line that's that's what happened with those uh, two men that day and and they started making the movement and there were no we had no partner forces on this one if i remember correctly which was extremely unusual unusual and uh and not your typical uh, mission not really even sanctioned uh but because we were going to support American soldiers, I think, uh, higher, uh, found that, uh, it was going to be acceptable for us to, to make that movement without Afghan, uh, forces. I almost feel like that decision was just completely bypassed and it just, no one even, we decided to ask for permission instead of, or ask for forgiveness instead of asking for permission kind of thing. Yeah. And if you think about it, if we, if we had gone to pick up anybody uh, from, from, uh, from our Afghan, uh, either local police or ANA, it would have taken another hour. Yeah. It had brought it to a halt. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was our understanding that we were going to provide some needed support and, and possibly help save lives. And, and that's what the platoon, uh, was, was good at. Uh, we, we knew how to do that. And, uh, and so we, we made that movement. Um, it was one of the fastest movements. Um, I've, I remember, uh, even after that, I don't remember making a movement that, that quick. And it, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't reckless. Um, it was, uh, it was people understanding the need. And we were small, but, but, you know, we were able to move quick because there was only uh, like a squad. Seven or eight of us. Yeah. yeah. It's like a nine, just a handful. Yeah. Uh, we started uh, getting close and that's when I uh, started getting quite a bit of uh, radio communication, both from, from our talk as well as from uh, Charlie company uh, who were, we were going to support there. Um, we were basically told one, the entire Kandahar area is watching you from the Masangar video feed right now, which, uh, which was pretty nerve wracking, um, to say the least. And then, uh, the second communication that we got was, um, if, and this was from Charlie company and they basically told us if you don't have a bulldozer, why are you coming? Um, and that that was a little bit confusing uh, for me, 
um, and, and confusing for, I think, the rest of uh, everybody who, who was there because our understanding was we, we weren't providing bulldozer support. We weren't going to extract them that way. We were, we were coming to, you know, provide medical attention. And um, it was shortly after that that uh, Clark uh, stepped on the IED. And what do you, what do you remember about the, the moments leading up to that? Um, leading up to that, really, it was, um, there was a lot of confusion. Uh, for me, this was a moment that, uh, that every leader knows, uh, take a tactical pause, right, and figure out what's going on. Um, and for me, it was, it was uh, a mistake that I made. Uh, not doing that, not slowing the, the movement down at that point and trying to understand what was going on. Instead, um, Sergeant Holt and, and Clark uh, continued making the movement and it was uh, just a couple seconds after, uh, after those communications came in and they, and they were hit by that IED. That if I remember correctly, there were, we were in a grape row. Most of the squad was, um, and in front of us was a eight foot high wall, and long. it probably stretched. I'm sorry, it, it was long. You know, it was probably yeah. 150, 200 meters long. Yeah, it wasn't one of those ones we could easily bypass. Um, it would have added a significant amount to our movement to bypass the wall. But right in front of us was an enticing little gap. A little V in the wall, um, which on a normal day I think we would have known better. Clark definitely would have known better if he wasn't tired, frustrated, whatever. Um, and he shared that with me, so I'm not putting words into his mouth. Um, to go through that, like we're this is late August, um, but I think, like you said, there was that urgency and that care because we knew that there were at least you know eight or nine guys that needed our help, or we thought needed our help that was our understanding yeah um so i mean i think you know bypassing that wall would have cost us 30 40 minutes easily and there was no way to knock it down either because it was it was massive another thing that was running through everybody's mind at least from our perspective in terms of security is that we were such a small unit i think everybody had this lingering uh expectation to take contact on our way in because it was you know it was just kind of one of those days. And so that we were, all of us were rushing and not really rushing, but all of us were, were hitting that pace, that really quick pace, you know, and I think Clark and Holt kind of understood that and they wanted to get down there quick too. So that not only could we boister their numbers up, but also boister our own. Uh, Cause I think we all were kind of halfway expecting to get hit on the way in there. Yeah. I mean, that would have been uh, based on the, the terrain. It would have been uh, uh, really, if I remember right, there was a, tr a thick tree line in front of us uh, on the other side of that wall, and it was a perfect place for them to ambush us. And, oh, yeah. and we would have taken uh, heavy casualties ourselves um, just being out in the open uh, the way that we were. Um, so all of those things together, um, 
really, uh, like you said, come and all of that information and understanding, you know, what, what uh, the situation was led to making that movement uh, essentially right, right where an enemy force would have, would have wanted us to move. So Clark steps on the IED. Um, describe, if you can, the, the next couple of moments, as you recall. You know, you have the dust that, that just coats everything and that thick layer of dust and then the smell of HME and, and burning flesh. Um, you know, those, those things all stay uh, very uh, vivid in the mind, even even to this day. Um, I can still smell that that smell, and and then I saw in in just those those few moments of confusion, I saw people make decisions. Uh, I saw men rush to to the front. Um, we were always taught don't don't run toward an IED blast, right? But uh, it, it wasn't people thinking about their own safety at that point. It was people thinking somebody's hurt. I don't know who it is, but I'm going to go save. Them. I'm going to go help them, and and my life is is not more important than theirs. And that's uh, that's what I saw. Um, in, in just a split second, uh, Luke, you ran up to the front. Um, Tom Evans uh, ran up to the front and started providing uh, support to Clark uh, before they even really knew who, who it was that was hit and, and what, what, what was going on. That uh, willingness to run into danger for your comrades, that's, that's something that I, that I saw uh, on display, not just that day, but, but every day after that, when, when we had issues, uh, that, that arose when, uh, you know, men's lives were, were in danger. Those were the type of decisions and reactions. And, and it has, has nothing to do with being reckless has everything to do with, uh, protecting your own um so we're responding to a mass casualty event we've just had our own um you know incident at this time medevac availability was very limited can you explain how you how you came about that information and what kind of workarounds we were able to find to get clark out of there obviously with Charlie Company's casualties, uh, there, there weren't a lot of resources available. And we, uh, we actually ended up uh, getting communication back that there was a, uh, a group of PJs in the area that could provide support. And they were uh, within that, that uh, golden hour, essentially, to get Clark uh, safely uh, off, off the battlefield, um, and those guys responded. It it wasn't their typical mission, but because of uh, I think the resources 
that that we're watching uh, from the Massengar feed. Um, it was essentially do do whatever we can to get those guys out of there, uh, whatever whatever resources we need to to provide to um, to make sure we we save a life. We need to get it in, and and that's what happened. We we had that uh, crew of, of PJs that came in, and uh, uh, were able to really get Clark out in a timely manner um, so that he had a chance. The, uh, the HLZ that we had to get to, uh, it, it wasn't exactly close. No, it wasn't close. It wasn't ideal. It was the only place that we could, yeah. that we could possibly get a helicopter in there. Um, if I remember right, it was uh, maybe half a click away yeah, I'd have to get on Google Earth and do some measuring, but it was it was far. Um, whether it was actually far, or it was uh, infantry far, infantry far, yeah, um, or grapeo far, grapeo far, right? Yeah. Um, what I remember distinctly is how. So I mean, Clark was severely injured, um, and this is kind of our chance to kind of let listeners understand how these blasts um, affect the body. Because the idea is, oh, he stepped on a, a landmine and he lost a leg. But that's that's actually the, the lost leg was kind of the least severe of the injuries that he sustained in that incident. Um, it would, uh, In my observation at the time, and I think Clark would agree right now, the more severe injury was the, the shattering of his, his good leg, yeah. um, which made that movement. And it's, yeah, oh my gosh, I forgot about his hand. Yeah, and he, uh, he lost a couple fingers on his hand. Um, Luke... Do you, what do you remember about that movement to the LZ? We were such a small force, and then one of our two of our guys were at a commission because Holt was completely, you know, his noodle was rocked, and so we were all trying to rotate in on out and put and moving Clark. And then another thing is like we were going up and over grape rows because we didn't have the option of walking the length of a grape row because of the way that everything kind of laid in there. So it was up and over grape rows this HLZ. So every time we would move Clark and jostle him around and you know he had this like terrible feeling it's guilt of when he'd bang his wet leg or hit his hand on something even though he was up in the what was that thing called the plastic thing the Skedco the Skedco yeah it was like you know it was trying to get him to safety but also causing him pain you know <laughs> yeah I think that was that was the toughest thing for me was trying to get him there quick but knowing that you were kind of sacrificing his comfort a bit to move him fast. Yeah. You know, because the only way to, to move him without causing him pain would have been very, very slow, very, very deliberate. And like, it wasn't really an option. It's like, so, I think I even apologized. I was like, sorry, buddy. <laughs> it's going to hurt. And he was such a badass during all that. Like, you know, he was still just, is a badass. He's still a badass. Yeah. <laughs> but he was such a badass the whole time. I mean, he was like, he was he was obviously an immense amount of pain, but he was still like kind of cognizant and aware, and and he was doing his part to make it as easy on us as he could, you know, which speaks a lot to his character and his resiliency. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one of the things that uh, that I I really take away from from that experience was um, just how important it is to understand what what sacrifices 
that guy in the front is making uh and and you're further back in the stack and and you you worry about every step that you're taking but you you kind of have it in the back of your mind well there's guys ahead of me and they've stepped there so i can step there too right but when you're up there up front clearing the way clark was clearing um you know he had his mind hound and and we we've already joked about the the accuracy of that particular piece of equipment um and and the difficulty in, in understanding what what is uh, actually uh, happening when it when it makes the noises that it makes but um you know clark was was making that that push he was making that movement he was making that sacrifice knowing exactly what uh the stakes were uh personally for him and and he was uh, doing that uh with with full knowledge that uh that if he stepped on something he was he was likely to at least lose limbs if not his own life yeah. and uh, he was willing to do that and put himself in that position to to try to uh save a life himself yeah and i'm pretty thankful that old clark he got out of there uh yeah um because i know that coming back from that and that's not skipping the conversation about how he got back because that was pretty brutal too but um that was that was pretty impactful on on me personally uh, i know it was impactful on the on the platoon as well uh because it you know, they, they always say that it always happens to the best person and Clark was, um, you know, the best of us for sure. Absolutely. He had a bright future in front of him. Um, and you look at that sacrifice that he made and, and know that um, he wasn't just sacrificing what was, but what could have been sure. also. And, uh, and all of us know that, you know, when you get hurt like that, uh, your military career is essentially over and, and rightly so, but, um, but he, he sacrificed a lot that day. Um, and it, it was, it was something that, um, I think everybody took hard. Um, it was something that, that I blamed myself for. Uh, it was difficult for me to come to terms with what had happened to one of the best of us. And, uh, and it was difficult for, uh, for the long time, a long time, uh, immediately after, but, uh, but also, uh, lasting, uh, to know, uh, just the impact that it would have, uh, moving forward for him. And, and at the time, I don't, I don't know that we even knew if he was going to make it. Um, I know that that was hard on on everybody, not just, uh, not just his close friends in the, in the squad, but also the entire platoon and, and quite frankly, the entire company took it very difficult. Yeah. I mean, it's when that happens, there's a significant delay between when the event happens and we get any kind of word back that what, what happened to them one way or the other. I mean, cause they have a 20 minute flight to Kandahar, they get rushed into surgical and, um, at the time, we're in a grape row, exhausted, and it's on our minds. But you know, now we're not think we're now we're not thinking about that. Only 
Now we're also thinking about how are we going to get our six remaining guys uh, back up that awful movement that we had just rushed through. Because at this point, if I'm not mistaken, the mission to go save Charlie One Two Three was axed. They said, "Just go home." Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was a combination of of the fact that we didn't have a bulldozer, uh, which is something they needed, um, and uh, and we didn't have the people to be able to to defend ourselves if if we took contact, and then we didn't we didn't have the medical supplies if if we had uh, taken contact or. or stepped on another IED or, or whatever it was that could have happened to us. Uh, we didn't have the resources to be able to save ourselves. It would have essentially meant calling another unit out to come and save us. Right. And, uh, and so, yeah, we, we couldn't move forward. We, we had to essentially make that backtrack, ride it back out of there and, and get home. So given so that the events of that day, you know, you had Boyce about a week before, uh, and then we had Clark, and um, we did eventually find out later that I think even when we got back that he was stable, um, and that they were optimistic he was going to be okay. Um, and then it was just a few days after that that Perez got shot. Uh, it was a pretty rapid fire sequence of events. Um, as a leader, you know, how did you see, A, how did that make you feel to see those rapid sequence of events? And then also, how what did you observe with, with the guys and how that affected them, this, those three rapid-fire events? Yeah, I think as a, as a leader, uh, you take a lot of responsibility for, for uh, what is, what's happening. You know, you take all the responsibility, essentially, when when um, your soldiers are uh, falling in front of you, um, you wonder, am I making the right decisions? Um, and, and there's quite a bit of, of uh, second guessing that goes into to those uh, decisions that you're making, um, especially when you know you've been you've been making decisions and, and things are going good. Uh, and then you have uh, three, three, quick uh, incidents like that right in a row and um, and you start to really take a lot of blame. I think for me at least that's the way uh, I, I saw it and uh, and it, it, it was something that that really put me in a, in a difficult place uh, mentally. Um, it was, it was a, a very dark place that I that I fell into uh, um, pretty quickly. Um, something that uh, really uh, I've never really actually discussed this with with anybody, but um, but I took those uh, casualties uh, very seriously. And, and I started to second guess what I was doing and started to second guess is, is this, is this right for me? Is this, is this what I should be doing? Um, and, and it, it took some conversations, uh, with, with, um, 
all all levels really uh, discuss having discussions with uh, the commander, discussions with squad leaders, discussions with soldiers, um, and and understanding that uh, they still trusted me. Um, they they still uh, believed that uh, what we were doing was. Uh, was something that uh, was worthwhile and um, and they were willing to do it with me um, as their leader and that that uh, really pulled me out of a uh, a dark place um, those are difficult conversations to have sometimes and 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 initially, I think it was difficult to believe that that what people were telling me was was true, um, you know. But eventually, uh, I came out of that that uh, that kind of funk that I was in uh, because uh, because I believed in in not just the mission that we had, but I, I believed in the platoon and, and I believed in uh, very strongly the, uh, the soldiers and NCOs uh, who were uh, in front of me and, and behind me and beside me. And, and, uh, and I saw their resiliency. Uh, I saw that they were resilient and were willing to, continue to move forward um, and and so uh, I made I made a decision um, that I would continue doing it um, I think that's that's one of those things that um, you don't you don't know how how difficult a, a, of a decision that is until uh, you have to make it and and uh, and I think uh, it was it was the confidence of those around me that they still believed that I could uh, lead that platoon, um, and that was uh, that was what really uh, drove me forward through those events. And I think um, those are you you talking about something that. We've talked a little bit about already, but one of the things about combat and the experience of combat, and especially as a leader, because you're, you're, all of this is kind of enfolded even more so, is how complex it is in terms of the human element, in terms of the kind of functionality of it, the day-to-day the -day grind, and something like somebody getting hit, especially getting shot or something like that, like Perez you know, getting shot or stepping on an IED, it's it's not something as simple as like a direct result of one's own decisions. It's a it's a compounding of a multitude of decisions from a bunch of different angles. And so whenever you were kind of going through this after Perez got hit, like did you did you were you having a more difficult time at realizing this complex web of things that that result in these one these occasions? I mean, was, is, was that becoming more clouded or did you always just try to 
it was it always something that you just took upon yourself because you know i think it's 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 instinctual for us to want to especially as a leader it's something that you want to do you want to take control of the situation and that includes taking control of the negative even though sometimes that negative maybe doesn't necessarily directly under your control or in your control you know um am i making sense no, definitely. Um, I, I understand what you're getting at, um, the, that complexity and, and, uh, just because, you know, we decided to take a Minotaur through Sketcha, you know, was, was that a decision that I made? And, and I, I think about all of the, the, uh, complexity like you're talking about um what all went into that that action and and did i you know place a uh an ied over there did i know that that ied was going to be there and clark was going to step on it no absolutely not and and if i had we we would have done something completely different and and i think looking back at things it is that whole hindsight is twenty twenty, right? You you look at at the uh, at the action or the result, and uh, you can easily tie that to a decision that was made um, in in the moment. Uh, but you don't have you don't have that information until it happens, and it's that fog of war that that really. Uh, clouds some of that decision making and and when you get to that uh place uh i think i think it is like you're saying luke it's it's understanding that um you know you make the best decisions that you can and if you're absolutely making uh you, you believe you can continue making good decisions then um then you believe that that you're going to put your men in the best place to uh, accomplish the mission and uh, get them home safely. And so much of it is just luck, you know, or kind of like a, a controlled chaos in a way. <laughs> like it's it's that like I'm going to pop a squat instead of standing, and then a few seconds later you take contact, or it's like oh I, you know this isn't a great spot. I'm going to shift over here. Like these little minute things but sometimes it's just it's bad luck you know you round the corner and they're there or whatever and there or a, a news article sends you out on a mission <laughs> where, where somebody gets shot in the arm you know <laughs> it's so it's just there's so many things that are out of sight of our control and it's our human it's nature it's our human nature to want to control the chaos to want to control things that don't make sense to us and combat is definitely one of those things i think so you can implement a kind of a system that creates the I don't, I don't say the illusion of control it creates a minutia of control uh, but it doesn't ultimately account for happenstance and chance and luck you know and those are such such incredibly important components in someone getting wounded or killed bad luck or bad timing or whatever you know I mean kind of speaking to the complexities um you know, you had an insight on all of this that none of us really had 
yeah as as the platoon leader and your ability to uh, as a function of your job interacting with the locals and our afghan partners for luke and i and for the majority of the platoon we were just we were in a gunfight trying not to step on ieds uh, but you had much more interaction with the locals as part of our feigned attempt to try and fight an insurgency. How how did how did that uh, experience unfold for you? Well, I think kind of uh, kind of what Luke uh, alluded to was you know that mission that Perez got shot. We were we were looking for for a kid who supposedly you know his his body was laying out in the field somewhere in rao and um and what was important about that it was it was important to the people around us uh it was important to 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 the afghan people who we were there not fighting against but fighting for uh, essentially and and so um you know a, a lot of what we did um was a little bit behind the scenes for you guys because um you know we have we have a mission where we go and exploit an ied making facility and we take a we take a uh enemy combatant off the battlefield during that mission and it just happens that uh that a, a couple of days later we go visit the police chief in in the bazaar and we find out that that this enemy combatant had killed his his brother, and uh, and learning that type of information, and then um, uh, embracing those those people in in uh, in really the most vulnerable situations. Um, those those were the the things that we were out there uh, fighting for in reality um you know there's there's the mission where we um we were bringing school supplies to uh to afghan children in a relatively safe uh area of our ao and and we find out there's a little girl there that uh that needs medical attention and and then you do what you can to try to to uh help that situation um all of these these uh, little pieces of information that uh really uh were reasons for going out every day it wasn't necessarily to get into a firefight it was you know can we find this little girl a doctor can we get these uh can we get these school kids the, the much needed supplies that they need so that they can uh they can progress in life not just uh from a from a uh, physical standpoint of life but but you know can they can they learn and and uh and from an intellectual standpoint grow uh in in this type of chaotic situation uh so like in addition to the, the Afghan civilians and your interactions with the local forces, uh, we had a pretty unique relationship with the, the interpreters. Um, you know, they're obviously just like with everything else, there was a varying degree of quality of the interpreters. I mean, I think you even mentioned one barely even spoke Pashto. Um, 
but you know we had a pretty good relationship with Jay, and uh, you know as a as the PL, like it was a much more personal relationship because he was kind of at your side at all times. And how how did those kind of relationships develop and, and work out for you? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, there was there was the uh, interpreter that I spoke better past to than than he did, and, <laughs> and that was interesting. Um, but yeah, you mentioned Jay and, um, I knew Jay was special, uh, when, when I first got there, um, in, in terms of, uh, his ability, uh, but also in, in terms of, of how much he cared, uh, it's that care factor that I think was the, the real difference, uh, maker when it came to our interpreters uh and jay had it uh jay really cared about what he was doing and uh and not only that he cared about the people uh in panjway and he cared about the american soldiers too yeah we we trusted jay you know i think that's one of the reasons that even us like as joe's and as you know and it says just grunts we actually trusted him, you know, and that's not a usual relationship with Terps. And you know, you're lucky if you can trust your Terp. And we trusted Jay. Absolutely. The day uh, before we lost uh, Jay, not not lost him as in he didn't die, but uh, you know we we uh, sent him away on a helicopter. Um, he uh, he and I had a conversation. Uh, this was. Uh, before the mission that I affectionately call uh, crotch kick um, <laughs> because it, it really was for, for us, it was a, a kick in the crotch. Uh, yeah. But, um, you know, Jay and, I, Jay and I had a conversation and, and I, I had just found out that, uh, that my wife and I, Lauren, were uh, uh, in the process of adopting children and we had found out that we were uh, we had referrals for for two uh, infants in Ethiopia twins and uh, and I was uh, excited but I was also uh, really nervous uh, about um, moving forward because you know what what am I what am I doing this for if I've if I'm going to leave uh, two kids who are already orphans, you know, without a father, and and I stopped and I talked to Jay uh, that night about about the mission, and uh, and he reminded me, you know, we we're we're doing this for them, we're doing this for the kids, and, and Jay had kids back home also, um, and and he really uh, recentered me and refocused me on on the, the purpose of, of what we were doing. And, and he told me, you're going to make it out. I know you are, you're going to make it out alive. And those kids are going to have a dad. And, um, and that, that really, uh, solidified, I think my, my loyalty to him. Uh, so when we went on, uh, crotch kick the next day, um, Jay was was right there with me, like always. Uh, he was he was by my side. It was 
me and Jay and Boyce, and uh, we we were a team. Uh, we were the leadership team essentially, and and he was an extension of me, and and my ability to communicate with our Afghan forces as well as the locals. Um, when we pushed up, uh, we we started to get radio contact that that we had uh, enemy in the area, and we we were we were going to maneuver on them, which is something that that we didn't have the ability to do very often. But in that situation, there was a, an ability for us to get into a better tactical position and maneuver on on the enemy. Um, we set up basically an L formation um with with uh, uh half the uh platoon heading uh north uh on a lot on line uh and and the other half the half of the platoon uh online facing uh what would have been east and we were going to move in on this this position when we started taking contact and we were in a perfect uh, tactical position to move and be being able to maneuver on the the enemy uh at that point sergeant nakoa and i moved up the the left flank and um and we were moving towards the front and boyce was right there with me and uh and all of a sudden in the rear um there was there was an explosion and and i knew when i walked past uh the the spot where that explosion happened i knew it when i saw it this is this is no no good no bueno yeah um don't go there there's another gap in a wall if i if i recall correctly gap in the wall exactly and uh we uh, we moved past that gap, but our Afghan forces did not. Uh, and we had, uh, we had a, an Afghan soldier who stepped on an IED. It was a large one. It was a really big explosion. Uh, while this is what we're talking now, we'll have that video up. Um, cause we have the dust cloud and what happened immediately after. I looked back and, uh, and I saw this soldier. Uh, we were in we were in contact. Uh, we were taking fire from the enemy at that point, and uh, and I saw this soldier pop up and run across the engagement area, essentially um, straight towards that dust cloud. He had no clue who it was, what their what their issue was. Um, he just did what what. Uh, what had come to be the norm uh, with the, the platoon. You run towards the danger, not away from it. No, it's one of the, the, the American soldiers, one of, one of our soldiers. One of our soldiers. Uh, it was Smothers. Uh, when, when I got up to uh, back, back uh, to that position um, and Smothers was there uh, working on this Afghan soldier, before anybody else even even knew what was going on, that type of action um, is, like I said, what had come to uh, 
what had, what had come to be uh, the norm for uh, for the platoon, and and it's not uh, it's not normal to be valorous uh, in that way uh, that Smothers was that 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 day, but it was normal for us uh, to to react that way. Um, so when I say it, it's normal, uh, it's by no means uh, a normal thing to do. It's it goes against everything that that uh, we as humans know, right? It's it's flight or fight, right? Uh, and and running towards the danger uh, that is uh, the definition of a valorous action. Yeah. The, the striking thing to me from that video is that explosion goes off and he's, what, 50 meters away? He's not anywhere near it. He's totally safe. Um, and he, as he's running towards the site, he's yelling, who's hit, who's hit? He didn't wait to know who was hit before he decided to be, to, to make that action. He just, I mean, he, for all he believed, it was any one of us, any one of the EOD guys, any one of the ANA, he just picked up his feet and ran and figured out the information along the way because it didn't matter to him. You know, I'm sure there were guys on the platoon he didn't like. You know, it could have been any of them, but he wasn't. He wasn't basing his reaction on who it was. It was he was moving no matter what. Absolutely, and uh, and it's immediate when oh, yeah. you when you see the video. You, he's he's up and he's he's moving as fast as he could go. Yeah. That's a video that um, I'm glad I have, for one. Uh, it's a video that I've shown people at other points in my career. It's kind of an expectation management for what uh, an injury like that looks like and what it's like to treat an injury like that. Um, and the, the comment that usually I get when I start that video is, holy, like, holy shit. Like, because Smothers, he's up and he's gone. Like, it's it's instantaneous, and he's right right into that dust cloud. And there's obviously lots of aspects of that video that are great learning points for, uh, you know, paramedics or combat medics or just normal infantrymen about what to expect uh, with an injury like that. Um, but the immediate reaction from everybody is always, holy shit, like he uh, uh, regarding Smothers' response. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is extraordinary what he did. I think um, what's what's also important to, to note about that was was the injury to Jay. Um, and uh, Jay, my understanding was that he was with me. That's what I thought. Yeah. Uh, when I moved, he moved. And, and for some reason, in, in that moment, Jay hung back. Uh, he actually stopped and and stayed right at that gap. And when those uh, Afghan soldiers uh, moved through that gap, uh, Jay took a pretty good uh, brunt of the the blast. Um, not shrapnel or anything. Something had had obviously hit him in the head because uh, his head was was uh, he he had definitely taken a a knock to the head and he was, uh, he was swollen. And, uh, when I got back there, uh, he was, he was in tears. Yeah. Um, 
and uh, and he grabbed me and he looked me in the eye and he said he said I need I need to go uh, I need to go and and I I remembered that conversation from the night before him telling me you're gonna make it and and I didn't know the extent of his injuries but I knew I needed to get him on a helicopter and get him out and that's it's not typically what happens with our Afghan uh, uh, interpreters. They they don't uh, they don't get that same um, that that same level of care uh, that that even the ANA soldier. You know, we were we were loading him on an American helicopter, yeah. uh, but we were able to get Jay on the bird, and when he flew away. I never saw or heard from him again. Uh, we do know that he survived, that his yeah. wounds were not fatal. Uh, I believe it was just a very severe uh, TBI. Um, but unfortunately, that Afghan soldier did not make it. He did. Um, so, I mean, which I guess kind of speaks a little bit to the futility of of combat just in general. I mean... A lot, a lot of work and heart and soul went into to helping that guy, um, but it for sure wasn't you know completely futile. Um, but I think it just kind of adds to that that feeling of um, all the effort that was placed into saving him. And I think with us, uh, I as well have shared that video with people over the years in in different contexts. Um, I think. He gave his life, um, but others have learned and, and have been able to learn from that, that video and learn from that situation. And, uh, and I, I don't think he gave his life in vain. That's yeah, I would agree. Um, and for, I mean, we're not going to show the, that whole video. It's, it's, it's way too graphic. Yeah. Uh, but the, the summary there was that uh, he sustained a wound to his lower body uh, in addition to the amputation of his leg um, that was extremely difficult to treat. Uh, he was bleeding profusely from uh, the hip, um, which is uh, possibly one of the worst places to get injured. So the, the learning point there being teaching medics, infantrymen, uh, paramedics, um, anybody t to do that complete check, which they did, which, you know, Salvador and, and, and some others did. Um, Unfortunately, it just wasn't a survivable wound. Uh, and it's just kind of a lesson that even a blast, you know, we had how many, nine, ten guys on our deployment lose legs and not sustain an injury like that. Yeah. Um, you know, and potentially that was our ballistic underwear or our, our diapers that prevented wounds like that. Uh, but it's a, it's a good lesson. And, and I think you're right. I think uh, in hindsight, and I hadn't considered it from that perspective before, that the number of times that that video has been shared, that it's there's a very real potential that somebody's life was saved because of the lesson they learned from that video. Absolutely. So we, I don't remember specifically when that was in the deployment, and it's not super important when it was, uh, because the act itself is, is so noteworthy. Um, but as we started to reach the end of the deployment, um, there, you know, I think good listeners at this point are starting to observe that a lot of these stories we're talking about are from Najat. 
um, from an area that we called Dunjot, which probably actually wasn't called Dunjot, but that's a topic for another <laughs> another episode about the names of villages in Panjue. Um, but we started to get rumblings that we were going to go back to Dunjot in a big way. And when did you start to hear that that was, that was a real thing and that it was going to be kind of a big deal? Really, end of, end of September, um, we started to get uh, information about uh, some, some IED-making facilities in the Najat area. Um, pretty good intel that we uh, could, in fact, identify a couple of places that we believe to be uh, IED-making facilities in, in Najat that uh, led to a series of missions uh, and culminating in uh, the mission uh, beginning of October, Throat Chop. Um, we, uh, we made a, a, a big push uh, right before that mission uh, and took one of the IED making facilities out of play. Uh, and then uh, shortly after that, uh, we are assaulted in to Najat on uh, what is what has come to be known, I think, is the the culminating mission of of the deployment. Yeah. Essentially, um, big push across, uh, clearing essentially the entire Najat area. Third uh, platoon identified another IED making facility on day one. Uh, where we had an epic battle um, and and fought uh, a significant number of, of um, insurgents uh, from uh, a lot of different positions and uh, and we sustained heavy casualties um, Luke uh, being one of those uh, was was medevaced um, day one, I believe, and uh, and not. I'll let you kind of tell. Yeah, not a physical injury, uh, but but an injury just as important. Yeah, um, I mean, one of the things that we want to keep honing back in on over the course of this podcast is the effect of that daily grind. You know. And I think everybody has these moments where it breaks them, and some people, some people break, and some people can't come back from that. Um, and that's fine, but yeah, we were, <clears throat> excuse me, we were on this patrol, and we were this first day of the mission. We had been fighting all day. Um, we, due to some some maneuverability errors and some leadership, we ended up having to essentially give up all the ground we had just filed, you know, to take. And then we had to then push back across that ground to reconnect with the third platoon and the company. And I thought, um, it was just kind of like this, I had this moment earlier in the day where we were getting shot at out there on the road and I just kind of got fed up with it. Yeah, I sat down behind a tire after a little lull in the firefight. We started getting shot at again, and I remember I stood up, and, like, my entire psyche just kind of emptied, and I just became more mechanical. 
And then we were walking out in the open, walking, not running to cover, and just walking and shooting at everything in sight. And that was kind of like an odd moment for me. And then we pushed south later on in the day to link up with the company. And when we got in there, and I think if we would have stayed, I would have probably been fine for that next day. Um, because we were we were essentially, I thought, my impression is that we were about to bunker down and set up the patrol base for the night. And we got the order to go back to the north, to the village that we had just got done clearing and fighting in all day. Um because of this air maneuverability from people in the company. <clears throat> and so we started to push back out. And on our way back out, I was clearing. Curtis and I had switched out on clearing that day a little bit, I think, in my memory. It was kind of an odd day in terms of who cleared. It was very slow and methodical. But I started pushing back out and clearing. And, you know, I had my eyes down on the minesweeper trying to get us out of that village and back into this cornfield to push into the southern end of that chunk of glots that we had just cleared earlier in the day. And this dog came out of a gap um, up to my left and started yapping at me. <laughs> and, of course, it wasn't this registration of, oh, that's a dog that's barking at me. It was that instantaneous moment of movement in my peripheral, and I thought I was dead. You know, I thought for sure that somebody had me dead to rights from just a few feet away and I was going to die. And I turned and it's this fucking dog barking at me. And I, I kind of turned back away from it. And then it, it kind of scuttled around and it came back, started barking at me again. And I just like, I got so angry. I just had this well of hatred in me and I shot it. You know, I shot this dog and it started squalling and taking off. <clears throat> And then the owner came out and gave me the big stink eye or whatever. And as we began to push north and we pushed into this, um, these grape rows, I think. And it was this weird sensation where, you know, I'm, I know it's kind of funny because we're talking about fighting and shooting and having these gun battles and stuff. But I'm a pretty chill guy. You know, I'm not a very violent guy. <laughs> and to have initiated violence upon something that is that was completely innocent, more or less, in that situation, was like the catalyst for everything of the previous, you know, six months. And as I was moving along, it was like everything that I had either tried to suppress or everything that I had tried to... Um, everything that I had tried to deal with in my mind just collapsed in on me all at the same moment that in everything from that previous you know the engineers uh clark perez like all this stuff um the close calls that we had had you know that i'd had and i just collapsed and i started bawling i was crying my eyes out and i couldn't control myself and i went down to my knees and i and i was just shaking and crying um <clears throat> And so I, you know, I kind of got that out of my system and I was really rattled and I was really conflicted and I was talking to Dennison and Evans about it. And I was like, I didn't know what to do because I felt that I couldn't do my job. I grabbed the mine hound and I put, I cleared us back up to second platoon. They came in on the trucks and I even remember pushing out there being like a very obvious IED. And I was like spray painting it. And I was like, you know, whatever, pass it down the line. Don't set an IED. And I had this like 
this weird com- moment of gathering myself again. And then we got back to the trucks, and it was getting towards the end of the day. And um, Dennison was like, "Are you sure? You know, are you sure that you that you want to go?" And um, and he put me on the truck, and I could I can see it in my mind right now. I can see it so clearly that if I could if I could draw, I could draw every detail for you. Even the lighting, I remember. And the ramp's raising, and Dennison's locking eyes with me, and it's not a like, you know, get the fuck out of here. It's not any kind of contention at all. It was just genuine concern and genuine love, I think. And when that ramp closed, I took my helmet off, and it was, it was a terrible thing to feel like I was letting everybody down. And also understanding that I couldn't be out there. <laughs> uh, and so they closed the ramp and they took me back to Spermangar. And then the, and I went back there and just hung out. And uh, the next day, when all that shit was going down, I was sitting there at the cop. And when, Dennis, when I heard Dennison got hit, it just... I don't know, man. It was uh, it was a terrible realization to understand the limitations of my own mind and to know that I had picked probably the worst time in the deployment to quit. And when all those when all that shit went down the next day, it was just like this weight, this gravity, sunk into my to the core of my being, and. I hated I hated myself for it, and I hated that I couldn't be there with them fighting. Um, and so, you know, after that, from then on in the deployment, you know, I didn't let it. I fucking pushed, and I was not going to have that moment happen again. And I just switched into this completely different gear of a, as a human being um, where my self-preservation and my sense of, like, wanting to make sure that I was safe and things like that started to filter away and go out the window and it turned into this this desire to just fucking be there and to fight and I tried to fight hard for the rest of that time going forward I tried to fight hard and it was like I had to compensate for that I had to make up for that failure um so yeah I was essentially medevaced for mentally breaking and, you know, I'm glad I came back from it. I'm glad I didn't quit and you know, for the rest of the deployment. I'm glad I was there for the tail end. But it's just, that was a hard thing for me to walk away from. It was a hard, a hard experience to, to, to just deal with. <laughs> and the biggest thing for me is like that image of Dennison with his legs standing. That's the last time I saw him until we got back. So yeah, that was a uh, you know you know a part of that story of throw chop for me. Anyways, that was my story in that in that regard. Yeah, it's that uh, that love and respect. I think all of us um, felt the same way for you. Um, it was it was it was surreal to see 
soldier after soldier after soldier on that mission be taken away either in in a truck on a helicopter um it it literally was one after the next after the next that went down we fought hard um you both fought hard uh curtis ended up uh taking some rounds to to his backpack for uh for some fellow soldiers and and i know he would have taken those rounds to his body if he had to um and and those types of things were uh it was it wasn't us clearing the job it was us fighting for each other on that mission and i think it's important <laughs> i know this and i think luke knows this but i don't luke i don't think you had a choice you were going home no matter what that wasn't that wasn't your decision no and, and it, it wasn't it, i don't see you as uh as quitting I didn't, I didn't see it at that time. I don't see it today. Um, it was something that needed to happen for, it was, it was best for, for you, uh, that day to, to, uh, to go back and, and be able to, I hope so. Uh, get recentered and refocused. You're right. I mean, throat chop, um, day one was, no one got seriously hurt. Uh, we had some TBIs and some concussions. Um, and I think as a result of day one, I think we ended up had to send four people back to the rear. Yeah. Um, which left us pretty shorthanded. Not, uh, not like Clark's day where we were vulnerably shorthanded. And we still have probably a squad plus for the platoon. Plus a bunch of ANA, so we weren't we weren't you know under undergunned by any means on that day. Uh, it's still quite a probably forty people, yeah. large element, uh, just very few Americans. Um, so we pushed the short story because this this battle will be told many many times um, through many viewpoints, um, but we pushed east through the heart of Najat. Uh, while third platoon pushed south uh, on kind of on the the bottom edge of Najat, and they got into some stuff too. So it wasn't just us that day. Yeah. Um, and as we approached the final town, you know, we we had been getting into these fights and skirmishes with them the day before. There was only one place that they could go. We had blocking positions to the north and the south. The only place that they and to the west, we had uh, some guys from one two three the scout platoon uh, to the west. So they they couldn't go west. They had to be going east, and there was kind of a, a backstop there too. And there's that hardball road, and then A and P checkpoint there. So there was, we all knew that we were pushing into a fight of some sort, whether it was an IED belt or a gunfight. Turns out it was both. <laughs> um, so as we pushed through that final clot, right before that, the the town we really considered and shot that last uh, clot right before the road. Um, did we have any indication that we were about to get into it? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, your, your backpack getting, <laughs> getting shot up was a good indication we were about to get into it. I don't know that any of us knew how heavy a fight that was going to be. Yeah. Um, 
but one thing we did know was uh, was that yeah we were we were about to get into it yeah and uh, Denison was clearing um, he insisted he insisted he was going to clear um, he had the mine hound Evans Tom Evans was right behind him then it was uh, Nagurn and then uh, I was right behind Nagurn we started moving into that last uh, village and uh, I saw PKM first I saw a head pop up which I thought I'd never seen a single human being in the jot ever yeah that wasn't trying to shoot at me uh, so so that was one and then then I saw the PKM pop up uh, on the wall and uh, and um, we hit the dirt. I don't know how we weren't dead because we were 15 meters from the guy and um, and we got into it. Then um, the four of us jumped over a wall and uh, took cover and and then we we heard we heard uh, Akoa's hit. Then Lloyd's hit. I forgot that Lloyd got hit too. I totally forgot about that. Took shrapnel yeah. from an RPG. Yeah. And then ANA soldier was hit, and we we couldn't just hold still behind that wall. And Dennison popped over, Evans popped over, McGurn popped over, I popped over, and and we got. I mean, we got into it yeah. then, and uh, it was heavy fighting for. It wasn't a long battle, but it was 15, 20 minutes culminating in uh, Apaches, Apaches uh, lighting it up with uh, with um, Hellfire missiles, if I remember right. It uh, was rockets and 30 at, at our targets. Um, later in the day, they engaged, I think after we left, or just to the north of us, they hit something with a Hellfire, but... The, the village cluster that they were engaging near us, they were putting uh, 30 and uh, rockets down. Yeah. And at this time, you know, you guys were up front in a position to fight, but almost the entire platoon is inside a marijuana field. Yeah. Um, and like we have video uh, from Todd's helmet cam of hearing your, your gun fight up front, but we're completely powerless to do anything because we have no idea where you are. We can't shoot blindly through the middle of a marijuana field. So we're just, we're on our faces staying low uh <laughs> if, uh when you hear that video you, there's a couple real close ones um but i mean it was you know decent size exchange of gunfire a lull decent size exchange of gunfire a lull and i think pretty much the entire time up to and including while that helicopter was on the ground picking a co up i mean they were shooting at that they shot that helicopter while it was on the ground you can hear it in the video um so, I mean, that was just to get into that village cluster. I mean, And what we didn't realize was we were fighting into, like you said, an IED belt. Yeah. Uh, I think as we started to move in, there were places that we could have moved into pretty, pretty easily. Um, but we kept getting hits on the mine hand. Mm-hmm. And we, we were not... Uh, we were 
not going to move into that village hastily, especially knowing what we we had seen in other uh, situations. Uh, you know, when you move fast, you move into IEDs. And and we moved in and, and we cleared that vi village safely. It was deliberate. It was slow, but we had to move into the southern portion of the village, if I remember correctly. Uh, we the northern the northern part was just completely off limits. I mean, if we managed to hit a couple on the south, I would imagine every intersection, every wall in the north part was probably just full of them. Full of them. Um, after we cleared that village, um, I got word from from Robbins. Uh, that uh, a small element had moved out and um, not knowing where they were going, I ran up to see where they were going, see who who is it and, and where are they heading to. Um, we moved across a field, or they moved across the field, and I caught up to them as, as we got to the other side of the field. And one popped around the corner, the next, and then the next. And then uh, as I started to round that corner, IED went off and, uh, and all hell broke loose from, from that perspective of uh, when an IED goes off, you don't know who who it is. You don't know where they are. What's what's going to happen next? And I mean, it's wow. worth noting at this point, it's only five of you up there. Yeah. Um, because the rest of the element was kind of back still in the village, and I believe the plan was you were going to clear the way out and then come back and grab us and show us the way. Um, so it was you, Dennison, um, Evans. Nagurn, Stefan, and uh, Captain Kitchen. So six, six of you alone, um, out outside of our visual range. So we knew where you were, but we could not see you. And at that point, it was end of the day. Um, my radio, I I didn't realize it until uh, until I tried to call back to the to the unit uh, to the rest of you, and and my radio wouldn't key. And uh, I looked down, and and my battery was was had a hole in it, uh, and um, it had been shot. I don't know how it got a hole in it, but it was gone. Um, and and so I knew I knew somebody was down as I moved up to that ditch. Um, there was. Denison in the water. Uh, the physical specimen that he was, he was doing a push-up uh, to keep his his face out of the water. Uh, he was on his on his uh, hands pushed all the way up, um, and Stefan and I jumped down into the water and uh, started pulling him out. Um, once again, the physical specimen that he was, he helped us. Uh, by put it, placing his hands uh, on the edge of the bank and lifting himself up onto the edge of the bank. 
as we got him out of the water, both of his legs were, were mangled. Uh, one of his legs was completely gone. The other one was, uh, was going to, to be going soon. Um, and Stefan and I threw, threw tourniquets on and, uh, and at that point, uh, Tom helped us pull, helped us pull him out, uh, up off the river bank or the, that Creek bank. And, uh, and Tom wasn't in great shape himself. Tom asked me, Hey, sir, what, what does my face look like? And, uh, I said, Oh, you look great. And he didn't, uh, his, he had, uh, basically, uh, had, had his nose ripped off. Um, he looks beautiful today. Yeah. Uh, and I don't, I don't know who did that work on him, but, uh, yeah, he was, he was messed up. Um, and, uh, tears coming out of his eyes. He was, he was, uh, helping us put Dennison back together, uh, telling me and Stefan what to do. And, and the three of us worked on him and, and, uh, and, uh, with Tom's help, we saved his life. Did you hear the second explosion? Did you even know that that had happened or were you so I I knew exactly what happened cuz I when I saw Dennison in the water I yelled for a medic uh cuz my my radio wouldn't key yeah and uh and when that IED went off again I knew exactly who it was um I knew Todd had been hit he was once again the type of person who would run across the minefield to save a buddy. And that's what he did. Literally. Yeah. Um, there was no delay between that medic call and Todd running. Um, there was definitely a delay after the, expl- after the explosion because it, like we've talked about it before, there's that moment of silence and like absolute freeze. Like everyone just freezes and you're listening because you're trying to hear somebody call for medic or listen to the radio or you know in your heart you're hoping that someone just shot a 203 shot a grenade or it was you know an rpg from a and a or something like that which it usually was uh but it was so big we we kind of knew um but we were just kind of hoping maybe it had uh accidentally set off or and uh Taliban had set his own IED off, which also happened. Um, but when you called medic, he just, he was gone. Um, and I watched him around the corner through the same intersection you guys had just walked through, had just cleared through. But he took that one step different than the six of you and Roberts, who was in that intersection on a different part of it. He was standing maybe six feet away from where it happened. Um, he just happened to take that step and then it was just a puff of smoke and that's then the, the ANA started to panic. They were all over the place just because now they're freaked out. Now two IED blasts just went off in 30 seconds. They think they're standing in the middle of a belt, which for us meant we froze for them. They panic and they start moving around. Um, but we weren't, we kind of knew 
Because, like, again, in your heart, you know what just happened. But you don't accept it until you hear someone call for medic, which you know, it was it was kind of the same thing. But the problem there is we did have two medics. We had Doc Salvador with us as well. Um, but now there's no medic for for us to send up to Denison. Plus, like you said, now we have to slow down because rushing just got us a second casualty. Um, so with, we didn't know what the situation was up with you guys at all. But we knew we had one guy that had uh, stepped on an ID for sure. We, we knew that for sure. So uh, we had we had Doc Salvador to work on him, which makes it even, to me, even more incredible what, what Tom was doing up there as the only medical qualified person up there. I mean, he was a, he's a paramedic on the civilian side before he joined the military. So he's it. He's all you guys have. We don't have another medic to spare. Uh, in hindsight, obviously, we would have sent Salvador forward because Denison was the more serious of the two casualties. I mean, his wounds were much more serious than Todd's. I mean, Todd still lost a leg, but it was, was, you know, he basically lost his foot and had to take the leg kind of thing. Um, But, yeah, it's just complete and utter chaos. It was. It was was chaos. Um, But... Dennison lived. They did. Todd lived. Todd lived with with Evan's help. We were uh, we were able to to get him patched up, and then Medivac came in. Uh, that was the first time I saw you, uh, and uh, and you were carrying Todd. Uh, I don't know. I don't remember who else was there, but I just remember seeing you on the other side of the helicopter. And uh, we loaded uh, Dennison, Evans, and McGurn on that on that bird, and uh, away they went to calf. Yeah, uh, I was able to track down a lot of the pilots that flew over top of us. Kiowas, Apaches. I still haven't tracked down the crew of that medevac, but one of their medics got out, and I think helped. I remember he got out uh, on one of the. So they landed, and they didn't take any casualties. They let the medic off, and he helped. I don't know if he was ever awarded anything, but I sure hope he was because that's not something that army medics do. They're not supposed to do that. Uh, that's like a PJ thing to get off the bird. They are supposed to stay on that aircraft. Uh, so seeing that was kind of was super impressive. In addition to the the parking job that they did with that Blackhawk, which I don't like to give Blackhawk pilots a lot of credit, uh, <laughs> um, but it was damn impressive. Yeah. Um, so we had this pretty, I mean, and at that point, <laughs> the we're stuck. We don't have any mine detector. It just got blown up with Denison's legs. We just, our non-commissioned officer corps just got gutted. We had Lloyd, that was it. Sergeant Lloyd was, uh, with his shrapnel uh, injury, yeah. was the platoon sergeant on the ground. Yep, and the only remaining NCO. Um, and we had to be rescued, which is kind of embarrassing to admit, but we, we couldn't move. We were in the, we had no idea if there were any more IEDs. We had to assume that there were, uh, and I think I can't remember what, what, it was the same scouts that had to come in and, and, uh, escort us out. And we were what, maybe 50 meters, a hundred meters away from the end of our mission. Yeah. We, if you remember, we actually, uh, we actually, uh, consolidated in that field, uh, between, 
the the spot where Evans or where where Dennison was hit and where Todd were, was hit. We consolidated there, and at that point, uh, we jumped down into the into the shit creek and uh, and walked out uh, down that creek because we couldn't get back up the other bank. There's there was no there was no way we were going on any land in that area. If, if we were going to get out of there, it was going to be through the creek, through the creek. Um, and when we got to the other side, there was uh, Lieutenant Colonel Rutherford uh, pulling, pulling guys out. Uh, that was the most amazing thing that I, I think I've ever seen a leader do. Uh, I don't know uh, what, or who convinced him to do that, or if it was by his own volition, but to see that man there at the end of that mission pulling us out of the water uh, was, uh, I would I would fight for him any day yeah. and, and solidified my, my will to continue fighting. Yeah, and it, like, so for the listeners that don't maybe recognize that name, that is the battalion commander first and 23rd infantry he is standing outside of a secured area out uh, maybe about 10 meters outside of a, a secured area where we had just taken sustained contact for the better part of two hours and he's largely by himself i mean he's got a couple of his guys out there with him but he's a huge target and he's by like he matt's not kidding by himself physically pulling each of our soldiers out of the ground or out of the ground <laughs> out of the water uh, and pointing them to the checkpoint. It, I, I agree. It's, it's the most incredible thing I've ever seen an army leader do. Hands down. Um, and, you know, there's there's no limitation to the amount of respect I have for him because of that. Yeah. And, you know, it's a limited interaction. So who knows? Maybe, you know, his guys hated him for other stuff that he did. But that day on that moment, there it was, it was incredible. Um, and he, he was our battalion commander. You know, he was our battalion commander. Like Armstrong in CAF was like a stepdad or something. Yeah, he was. He was not our battalion commander. I think we looked to Rutherford for that. So we reconsolidate inside the Najat checkpoint. We get everybody back inside. Everyone is absolutely devastated. Um, not, but not emotional at this point. Just kind of like shell shock. I mean, it, it's absolute immediate uh, post traumatic stress. Uh, while the trauma is still ongoing. We have no idea how any of those guys are doing. Uh, but we're not home yet. We're still in the jot. We're just inside concrete walls. Um, and there's not enough vehicles to get us all back. Uh, do you remember the, the logistical conversation about getting us back to Sparwangar and what the options presented were at that point? If I remember right, it was... Uh... It was uh, the scouts were were going to take us back, um, and I thought to myself, "No armor guy is going to take me anywhere." Right now. <laughs> um, honestly, I don't I don't remember who took us back, but I think it was a mix. It was a mix of, of uh, whoever they could get there to get us off off the ground. Um, and uh, and we weren't we weren't on the 
radio. We were, we were done. Yeah, we were passengers. We were passengers. We were, we were crew. I remember I rode back in an EOD truck with, uh, with Russ and his guys. Um, there may have been one or other two people, and I still had Todd's gun uh, strapped to my backpack. And that drive back was extremely nerve wracking because I knew every stretch of that road, and even though I couldn't see it because I was inside this um, buffalo. Like, I'm like, oh, God, I've got to get through this S-curve that goes over the, the creek because that's the most likely ambush point. When we get past that, when we make our left turn, I'll start to feel better, but we get lit up on brown all the time. It's like I'm not – I'm a passenger, and, like, the dismount of mission is over, but I'm not, I'm not out of the game yet. I have not allowed myself to relax yet until I'm at Svarongar. Uh, and until I felt the rumble strips – of us going over the uh, the ECP into Thorngar was that was that was when I was like okay we're good, um, and seeing Lieutenant Colonel Rutherford pulse out of the creek was one immense emotional experience for that day. But the mo- by far, and it takes a lot to exceed that, but it was bested by what I saw when the ramp dropped on the Buffalo and the Strikers, and to see every single soldier on Spurwangar that wasn't on the mission. So the third platoon guys that had already gotten back, the second platoon guys that didn't go, um, Luke, Nance, like every single soldier running out and they're grabbing weapons and they're grabbing packs and they are taking our armor off and carrying it in for us. Um, I've never experienced anything like that before or since. Um, To see... Dozens of people rang out for the smallest gesture of just bringing me home. Yeah. And for me, I think, you know, for you stepping out of the trucks and I was moving to you and having been there for that whole day and watching, you know, hearing all this unfold by hearsay while I'm sitting around just pacing the floor waiting on all this and, I see Curtis, and we kind of lock eyes, and, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for to you for what you said to me, because I think it's helped me in the long run to come to terms with my choices and the consequences of my actions the day prior, uh, not having been out there for that fight, because the first thing you said, we hadn't seen each other in, you know, almost 24 hours, and I know the day you had, and you said, it's it's not your fault. It's, you know, it's like, it's okay. And we, we hugged and I could, you know, what's weird about that moment is I can, I still can smell how disgusting you smelled, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I give you a hug. You hadn't even had your helmet off yet. And you told me like, you knew, I think you already knew that I was, that was going to, that was going to bother me. That was already messing with my mind. And for you to have the foresight and the wisdom to, beat me to the punch and not let me start to implode save me from from a lot of the fallout of that and so that came gave me that it kind of helped me to realize like it was it wasn't okay but it was okay in that for someone who was in the thick of it wasn't gonna be it wasn't gonna be begrudgingly kind of accepting me there or whatever it it was an important pivotal moment for me not just um in regard to that event but in regard to the deployment you know 
because without that moment, I don't think uh, I'm not sure. I mean, we hear say you know we could would have could have should have kind of thing doesn't really get you far, but it would have been more difficult for me to come out strong on the back end of that without that recognition from you. Well, it still holds true. I mean, more boots on the ground that day means more IEDs that we stepped on. I mean, having a, a slimmer trimmer element, I think, was actually a good thing on that day. So we got back. Uh, normal end of mission stuff with all kinds of abnormal aspects to it. We've been gone for two days. We're disgusting. Everyone needs showers. <laughs> um, but there's a lot of questions still. You know, how is Todd? Um, how is Denison? Uh, Nince had the answers to those for us almost immediately. As soon as we walked in, they were always like, they're good, they're good, they're in surgery, and everything's, you know, they made it safe, you know, back to calf at least, and prognosis is good. So that's that's a huge weight off all of our backs. Um, you know, and the, probably the next 24 hours, 48 hours, we're physically resetting from the mission, restocking ammunition, restocking equipment, getting new mine hounds because we blew them all up. Um, but for you, Matt... You're watching this unfold uh, both as a leader and also as someone who's kind of a little bit more connected into what the plan is going forward. So could you shed a little light as to what you saw in the, the, the days and weeks after Throat Chop and the effect it had on the guys um, and their ability to, to continue to fight? Because we still had another two months. Yeah, there was uh, there's still... Uh, Plenty of fighting uh, left to do uh, from Sparwingar, and and we needed to uh, come back from that. People needed to talk about it. I knew that there were a lot of aspects of that mission that needed to be uh, discussed, and quite frankly, we were scheduled to patrol the next day. Um, we were scheduled to patrol to a uh, dangerous location where we took contact on a regular basis. And, um, and I uh, am grateful for uh, an NCO uh, who recognized what needed to happen and uh, went outside the, the chain of command to to get what what we needed done um, we needed we needed help we needed to see uh, we needed to see combat stress we needed to see uh, the chaplain we needed to we needed to talk about it and we needed a couple days to process what what had happened and uh, sergeant Nicoa uh, went to uh, sergeant major of not the battalion Third ID. of third ID <laughs> and uh, and communicated that uh, something that I think is is very unique to the NCO Corps uh, and being able to uh, get things done that need to get done um, and uh, Sergeant Major tracked me down and asked if uh, who was this Sergeant Akoa coming to? <laughs> and for our non-military listeners, this is potentially a career ender for Sergeant Akoa to go completely outside of his chain of command to bypass company, battalion, brigade, and go straight to the division command sergeant major and make a statement like that. 
if he had been wrong or out of out of bounds in his his request to do what he did uh you know the name sergeant Nicola would be the name of somebody who was removed from their post and sent home like it was it was one or the other he was either going to be successful in his endeavor to to get his guys a breather um and and get them help or he his career was going to be over and he took that he took that chance um and and it paid off for him uh it paid off not for him uh because it didn't advance his career uh it paid off for the, the platoon because uh, sergeant major tracked me down and and asked is this true is this what you guys need and i said absolutely it is it's what i've requested and um and we got it we got a couple days uh we got chaplains and combat stress teams and uh we got what we needed to process um and then uh i saw something amazing happen uh, i saw uh soldiers who uh, had been through some of the uh, most horrific trauma pull themselves up and go out and fight and not just fight a little bit and not go on these uh you know easy missions or or go play patty cake it was it was getting as we say getting after it yeah. right um and and they were they were doing that on a on a daily basis then for the rest of the, the deployment i mean if, if my memory serves correctly we about a week and a half later we pushed in at a jot again from a different angle and uh grabbed a guy and a whole bunch of intelligence on a night mission that was nobody wanted to go on um but we did it um and then we bombed Najat a few days later which was glorious here's the video of it um sorry i don't care if it's classified it's awesome <laughs> <laughs> um and we got in some some really good fights but what the switch that kind of turned on after that point is we we kind of took the position as a platoon or as a company actually really um we can we started to control the battlefield we were making movements that were um at night or uh more tactful and putting ourselves in a position to kind of catch the taliban by surprise and i don't from that point on i don't think we ever got caught with our pants down we, we kind of dictated the terms of the battlefield to the east of Sperwangar from that moment on. We essentially got our, we figured out how to get into position to force them to come out and fight us instead of us walking into them like, like we had been doing. Yeah. And, oh, that's how it felt, at least. Yeah. I mean, it felt that, that way. Yeah. yeah. And we, uh, we had some reinforcements. You know, we had some guys that, that helped out. Uh, one of the biggest ones, Sergeant Service. May he rest in peace. May he rest in yeah. peace, yes. Uh, for those who don't know, Sergeant Service, unfortunately, we perished in a car accident um, just a couple of years after we redeployed back from Afghanistan. So, Great dude. Absolutely. He was uh, one of the keys to being able to continue to fight and, and push against the Taliban in that area. Mm. Yeah, he had a fight in him, and he also understood that we were hitting our lick in terms of how we were working too. So he fit right into how, the, how things were kick, uh, ticking, you know. Um, he yeah, he handled that well, actually, considering the fallout that he was coming in to fill. He handled it very well. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, as you kind of mentioned, uh, Throat Chop was kind of the culminating mission for the deployment. We had some good fights after that, as I said. Uh, and I actually remember those mostly fondly because we kind of had the upper hand on those. Um, but kind of fast forward, you know, we came home. Um, and it's kind of standard that you start to see issues with guys uh, on that redeployment. So they say like that first 90 days is when everyone's going to crash their motorcycle, beat their wives or, or whatever. And there's, there's a lot of truth to it, honestly. Um, but even before we deployed, I mean, how were you seeing the effects of not just throat chop, but the entire deployment on, on, on your guys? There were, there were those incidents, um, you know, guys couldn't come to work, uh, or, um, I saw, um, not, not just from our platoon, but from other platoons within the company, um, you know, they, they were, uh, deeply affected by it. Um, I was deeply affected by what was happening and, or what had happened. And, and I, it took me a while to, to admit to it. Um, I know guys were, were having nightmares. I was having nightmares. I know, uh, people were avoiding talking about certain things and avoiding, uh, different, uh, different triggers, you know, that, that bring back memories. Um, and I, I think those, those first 90 days is kind of, it's, it's, uh, you don't really, you don't really get to a point where there's anything, you know, completely just mind shattering, right? It's, it's as that time goes by and, and you're, you're sitting on a tank, uh, you know, eight, eight months later, don't ask me why I was sitting on a tank. But <laughs> I was, <laughs> once again, battalion commander thought it was funny for an infantry officer to be on a tank but well i believe at this point they had repealed don't ask don't tell so. yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh you know you're you're sitting on a tank and you're and you're uh you're having flashbacks you know the explosions uh, the gunfire it's all it's all real and and it takes you back um and and all of those feelings that you felt in the moment are present once again. Um, you know, we, we, uh, within almost a year of, of redeploying, we're gearing up for, uh, a rotation, uh, at, uh, if I remember JRTC, um, and the battalion was deploying to, to Camp Shelby to, uh, to play Op 4. And uh, at, at that time, 
the effects of PTSD were were uh, running rampant within uh, not just not just Bravo Company, but uh, but everybody who trickled out from there. Um, I found myself sitting in a culvert one night with my M9, thinking of a way that I could get rounds uh, so I could blow my brains out. And those types of things, those types of experiences um, don't go away. Um, they, and as you avoid what you need to avoid to live life, it just becomes more painful. Um, and, and you get to a point where, uh, you, you can't, you can't breathe. You know, you're thinking about everything that, that happened. Um, and you see Clark and he's alive, but you still blame yourself for, for what happened to him. Um, you you see all these guys in Denison having a uh, you know a life outside of the military, but when you see them, um, all you can see is that guy in the ditch, um, and and how scared you are. Is he going to live? Is he going to make it? Um, and those feelings all come back. Uh, and, and they're just as real as the moment when they happened. I, I think a lot of people mis, misinterpret post-traumatic stress as shell shock. And like, oh, I hear an explosion or you hear something loud or um, kind of a lot of the, the typical, a lot, which are real symptoms. Uh, they're not, they're not, um, but the most powerful thing for me personally is like you're saying it's the the feelings the emotion the it's not it's a flashback but it's not but it's like a flashback of that feeling and being in that moment again that's far more powerful than you know jumping because somebody skipped a rock across a lake or someone found a roll of bubble wrap and thought it was funny to pop it all at once um yeah i, I think that's what's and you know, post-traumatic stress takes a lot of different forms and people process it a lot differently. Um, but I, I think for a lot of our guys, especially the ones that have taken a little bit longer to realize that there's an issue because they didn't have some of those more, um, topical symptoms of post-traumatic stress, they thought that they were good. And I think it's really important to highlight that, uh, there, there's stuff brewing under the surface and it's okay to, to seek help and, and to talk about that stuff. I mean, absolutely. Fuck ninety days, man. <laughs> it's taken me eight years, yeah, to realize that there's symptoms that I exhibit that I maybe originally thought not. And another thing, you know, for me, it's like between the our last firefight and my last day in the army it was only like sixty days. <laughs> so when we got back, I was elated. 
So I was on this high for months and months and months. And, you know, I started dating my, my now wife. So, you know, it was in the beginning of our relationship and, um, I was going to school. I was living all these dreams that I had dreamt about for two and a half years out of my four year and a half year contract. Uh, so I was, you know, I just shed, shed it off for such a long time. And these memories and these moments didn't really start to creep in into my, you know, into my, my mind until years later, you know, and then even just in the past couple of years, things have got, have more prevalence and things that maybe, you know, it's, and it's not really like the, the you know, almost getting shot or, or, um, you know, the sounds like Curtis was saying that kind of immediate stuff. It's that underlying undercurrent stuff that surges up in those moments and it just kind of hits you. Um, and so those are things that, you know, that are also a part of this experience. And it's something that, you know, I'm beginning to figure out that I got to do something about now, fucking, you know, eight, nine years later. Well, I mean, for, to its credit, the army teaches us really well to compartmentalize. Um, whatever's happening to you right now, you're going to, you got to, you know, fight it out. You got to push through it. You got to get after it and accomplish the mission. And then you got to get to Najat. You got to get on that strike. You got to get back to the base. So you're not really dealing with what's happening now or to the end of the deployment, or you got to get into flight school or you got to, you got to do this thing. You got to get into college. You have to get your four year degree. Like we compartmentalize a lot of these things because there's other things going on in our lives that take precedence. And the army did a really good job of teaching us that as a, um, as a, uh, method of, you know, mission accomplishment and getting the mission done. So it, it's a, it's actually a really good coping and resilience strategy on one hand because it allows you to to push past some of these things, but it's really bad for I think for a lot of guys' mental health to to compartmentalize these things because they can come back in a really nasty way. Yeah, and I think you you bring up a really good point, and that is uh, I think people sometimes wonder, well, well, you're successful, you're successful afterwards, you still get results. Um, and, and the army taught me how to do that. Um, deployment taught me how to do that. The soldiers around me taught, taught me how to do that. My, uh, good NCOs taught me how to do that. Um, my good leaders, uh, and, and the officers who, who led me taught me how to do that. Um, I know how to get results. What I don't know how to do is deal with PTSD and the yeah. symptoms that are, that are coming about me. So when I, when I get home from work and, uh, and, and the, the day all of a sudden catches up to me and, uh, and I, f I find myself, you know, sitting, sitting at a, a bird sanctuary five minutes from my home and, and screaming at the top of my lungs. And I don't know why I'm there. And, and, uh, just, trying to understand why am I not fighting at Sperlingar right now? Right. And, and, uh, because five years later, I'm still living that life. I'm still, I'm still living as if I'm there. Uh, and then fast forward to today, I've gotten some help. I've, I, it's been a long road. It's been, uh, a difficult road. My family has paid the price and, and my career in the military 
paid the price um, for for me making those decisions uh, to finally get help. But you can you can get past these things. It never goes away. It never uh, you're you're never gonna be able to stop completely the things that have that have happened to you in the past. You can't get rid of that trauma. But what you can do is you can learn to live with those things and learn to to live with yourself. Uh, and and those are the the uh, battles that I fight today. Those are the battles that you fight today, and and Luke that you fight today. Also, it's it's uh, a, a daily battle of of uh, of weighing the difference between uh, who you are uh, now and and what you've experienced in the past, and uh, and it's difficult, um, but there's there's nothing. Uh, there's nothing more important uh, than being willing to admit that you do need that help and and going out and getting it. And there are there are programs. I'm I'm not going to say that that every program out there is is worthwhile and and deserves to be uh, sought after. But I had I had great therapists uh, that. Uh, and, and great doctors uh, along the way who assisted me uh, in in seeing uh, the end goal, which was I I just want to be able to raise my kids uh, and and have a family and and be able to have this relationship with with my wife and have this relationship with my kids and have this relationship with my family and and then also still embrace. Uh, who, who I was, uh, and and the people who during that time at Sparling are are important to me still, and I'm I'm nowhere near where I need to be. I know that, uh, but um, but there is there is a future, there is uh, a life uh, that can be lived after this, and living with PTSD is is uh actually living with it is possible i can't think of a better point to to end on uh but i'm gonna give you the opportunity if there's anything that you wanted to say uh and hadn't been able to work it in just yet this is kind of like your your opportunity the floor is yours matt i think really the the only other thing that i'd like to end on is just uh, reaching out to to uh, those soldiers uh, who I haven't personally reached out to in in years, um, and just letting them know I think about you, um, I love you, I love who you were um, when when we were downrange together, and I think about you every day. And I think about the things that we we uh, accomplished together, and I'm grateful to have those those moments and those memories. And uh, and if if for whatever reason you ever need me, you need to contact me. Feel free to reach out to me, and and I'm I'm 
I'm here. I'm 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 a good listener. I can talk too, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm a real good listener. So um, uh, reach out to me and and uh, if you if you need to talk about anything, I'm there. Great. Well, Matt, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I know parts of this was was really difficult for you, and we appreciate you flying up to Alaska, being willing to do this in person, being willing to be the very first guest on the Panjoy podcast. Uh, it's extremely humbling for us. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Very thank much. you. Yeah, this has been a really humbling experience for me. I appreciate it, guys. Yeah, thank yeah. you.